Welcome to episode 58 of Kyperian Commentary. I'm your host, Yuri Brito. I encourage our listeners to follow our work at Kyperian Commentary at kyperian.com. More information uh, on that after the show and our notes. On this episode, I am uh, really full of joy to have uh, an old acquaintance of mine, Dr. David Cassidy, who is the lead pastor of Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee. David, we were talking before the uh, the podcast. It's been a while since we've seen each other, but it's really great to hear your voice, brother. Yuri, great to connect with you here. And yeah, it's been far too long uh, between visits. So great, great to be here with you. Yeah, my pleasure. I've been following you on the social media. And that's, uh, I guess that's the the way today we, we keep up with each other. But uh, you have something really fantastic has just been published by PNR, and it's a book entitled Indispensable, uh, The Basics of Christian Belief. Um, usually when people interview authors, they usually ask, what was behind the, uh, you know, what, what, what kind of work? Why did you come up with this topic? So let, let, I'm going to just ask you a, a, a more general question. Um, why did you wait so long to write this book? Because I have uh, been aware of you for some time, you, your contributions uh, intellectually and in other ways have been just fabulous. You took quite a bit to write this book, and I have some suspicions why, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, I I think I never felt absolutely it, it was absolutely necessary for me to write a book. There's so mm-hmm. many great books, and I right. suppose that, uh, as I said to a, a friend of mine, I, I felt my greatest calling was to read everybody else's books. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, there's so many fine books out there. It, it, I wanted to be um, extra cautious on that. Uh, I was asked to write the book. And so I felt when I was asked to do one, rather than simply taking the initiative on my own, that I would take up that challenge. Basically, my take on pastoral ministry has been to serve the people where I am. So I've written articles for churches I've cared for and sermons to address them. I've never tried to say anything more widely and, and that remains really my focus. Everything I try to do, I really try to do for Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee, and my neighbors. And so it's a very local focus. Uh, when I was asked to do something more widely, I was happy to take it up. Uh, and, because I, and I thought it was a necessary topic to take up. That's wonderful. I uh, My suspicions were that, uh, well, really precisely what you said, but I think when you have a a view of the church that has a, a with a pastoral emphasis, you do minister not in the sense that you, you're not thinking about what you're preaching to the masses, but no. you're thinking very particular to your congregation. And it seems that this book is really the fruit of uh, many years of faithful ministry. How long have you been in the ministry, David? I'll be um, 39 years this August. 39 years. Um, Would it be all right if I told you I'm 39 years old? (laughs) Well, that that just means they're obviously doing a much better job training ministers than they were. (laughs) So you're you're on a roll. I'm I'm so thankful for what you do. uh, Thank you, brother. And likewise here. Look, I have been looking for a book to work through with new believers and even those who are young in the faith for a long time. I have read portions of this book on the treadmill for the last uh, few weeks, 
and I have marked quite a bit of it. And there, there's so many great things about this book, but your, your writing is, is punctuated by the kind of uh, uh, joyful interventions and from the lips of all sorts of musicians and great movies. Yeah. So uh, just to begin this conversation, tell us a little bit about your uh, your love of, of you know, what we would say in the classic world, the good, the true, and the beautiful, and how that plays a role in how you think about the gospel. Well, God's God's looking to call us to himself, uh, a fire in a bush. Uh, and it's a very, very natural uh, surroundings. And he's they're, they're full of his presence. Um, so uh, po- poets like Gerald, Jared Manley Hopkins or others would, would be constantly reminding us of the, the presence of God and the beauty of God and the grace of God coming to us in the in the world all around us. And this is often where people are first awakened to the reality of their need for God and the beauty of who God is. And so I wanted to include those kinds of realities when we were starting to talk to people who were either skeptics and, or seekers or new to the faith, because those are familiar places to them. I, I actually, at the outset in the first manuscript, had a whole lot of uh, quotes from a variety of, of songs that are mm. uh, probably pretty popular in, in Nashville and Austin, two great music cities that I've had the privilege of serving in, and which would be well known to others. But uh, the, uh, the the price of, of copyrights on those kinds of things proved to be too high to put in the book. So I could refer to yeah. <laughs> without quoting them directly. Uh, there's only a couple where I just quote, quoted directly, but poets like like Eliot or writers like Bob Dylan, lyricists like Bob Dylan and others uh, are, are, are important voices in, in the way that people encounter the goodness of God, uh, their need for God. And so I think including that rather than just sort of saying what might be considered a more commonly religious approach was, was an important starting point. Well, that that uh, connected with me almost immediately as a lover of similar things. And then one other related question. My my last interview was with a classical teacher here in Pensacola who is a very, very gifted cook. And ah. we're all we're all lovers of Robert Capon. Yeah. And um, we had this wonderful conversation. He wrote an essay entitled, Are the Culinary Arts Liberal Arts? And um, in the process of the conversation, we talked quite a bit about the role of cooking in how it's shaped his theology and how has mm-hmm. affected his theology. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, well, I read Scotty's, uh, yeah. uh, Scotty's words here. It's and I've also known that. of, uh, yes, I've also known of, uh, your culinary gifts. Uh, talk a little bit about how food and, and theology kind of come together in this, this beautiful feast. Well, I, the word that you use there is just important. It's a feast. So of course, you know, Paul says to us, keep, let us keep the feast. Mm. There's, of course, he's referring. You know, it's very Eucharistic terms. But if if you take the whole Bible, uh, the scope of the Bible, it's in many ways a story of of feasting from beginning to end. And, and so, at the outset, we arrive as uh, omnivores and hungry. And God says, "Do you see all of this? You can eat this. I've provided for you." One of the things I note in the book is that. Um, uh, in, in pagan mythology with regard to the creation of, of man, men, humans are made to 
serve the gods food. God makes us and he serves us food. It's the total reversal of the pagan mythology. And right at the outset, we find God coming to us with the food that we need. Now, he says, don't eat over here. And we go to the wrong restaurant and it's a disaster. So we we eat where we shouldn't have. And so it's really no surprise that in many ways, the whole story of redemption is an invitation to a table, a feast that God prepares and saves his people through, whether it's the Passover and the great exodus of God's people, uh, which of course finds its ultimate expression in the establishment of the new covenant with Jesus interpreting that table in terms of the new covenant and, and saying the reverse of what happened in Eden. You know, in Eden, she took and ate and, and Jesus says, take and eat. And he reverses the curse of the fall by giving himself to us as the feast and setting the table for the feast. And all of this, of course, culminates in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So uh, history is the story of, of this great feast that goes on. And God, uh, throughout the Bible, is defeating his enemies this way. In fact, he sets a, Isaiah talks about him setting a, a great feast on the mountain, the holy mountain, as the culmination of history. And he, God, eats death. He eats it up. He swallows it. Mm. And, and so he, Jesus, drinks the cup of wrath so that we have the cup of blessing. And so this is just all over the Bible, this kind of idea. And of course, we eat the scriptures and so on. So for me, when we always say the most important ingredient in any, any dish we present is love. Mm. Love comes through. And so whether it's a, a, a bowl of soup, which has been lovingly prepared, or, a, or a, a beef wellington, which has been lovingly prepared, whatever is presented, people should feast with their eyes and their senses and their taste buds. And they're picking up on the fact that there's a, a, an expression of affection and care in the choosing of elements, the combining of those elements, the, the, the preparation and presentation of those elements to people so that they enjoy something of beauty. And I think when people encounter beauty, they encounter something holy mm. and they're reminded of, of who God is and that he made us to be something other than mere animals. The animals don't prepare their food and they will, they will just dive in. They don't, they're not Eucharistic creatures. My dog is happy as he is to eat. My, my golden retriever never, never pauses to give thanks. <laughs> but we are Eucharistic people. We stop and give thanks. Yes. And we're, we're so, so all of that is tied into that. That's probably way too long an answer, and, but there you go. No, that's wonderful. You say on page 189 that a good meal can help people to reconnect with each other and with the beauty that God has given to our world. I think that, that summarizes a lot of what you said there. That, right. And it seems, it seems, David, that the this concept of this idea of this concrete reality of bread and wine, of the Lord's mm -hmm. Supper, of the sacraments, sometimes that doesn't play much of a role in the discipleship of human beings in the church. Um, I wonder if you could say something about the importance of the sacraments shaping um, parishioners from their early days to the end of their days. Yeah. Oh, thanks for asking about that. Uh, one of the questions I am asked fairly regularly is why I'm I even included a, a chapter on sacraments in a book on Christian basics. Some evangelicals are surprised by it. Wow. Uh, you know, so, but obviously baptism is an entry point. So that's pretty basic. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the call to the table is, 
is characteristic of the ancient Christian practice. Because when we want to talk about spiritual formation, I think that happens not in isolation, you know, the kind of individualized, privatized, quiet time, though I'm all for personal devotion. But authentic spiritual formation, biblically considered, takes place in a community at a table. Worship is a banquet hall, not a lecture hall. And Protestantism, it tends to tends to be, or evangelicalism, it right. tends to be a lecture hall. Here's this information download. Whereas, in fact, we gather around a table and we're a family together. And that is teaching us by receiving each other that we need each other and I am not adequate in myself and that I need the gifts God's given you and he's gifted me in certain ways. And those need to be called forth and developed in ways that uh, magnify Jesus. So I, I, I think this is the, the, the gathered worship of God's people around the Lord's table with the scriptures taught and proclaimed as the primary means of spiritual formation. Um, wonderful, wonderful that people have personal devotions. Wonderful that people have a little Bible study over here or something. Those are vital. I'm not in any way denigrating that. But here's primary. So I think that's basic. Mm. David, one of the things I really appreciated about the book was uh, that you avoided a lot of the classic evangelical evangelical cliches, and you didn't present a safe version of the Christian faith, precisely because you say there's a danger that comes with Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. Um and I think people who are reading a book about what is the Christian faith, what are the basics of the Christian faith, are perhaps many in our culture have agreed with the uh, stereotype that what Christians offer is a kind of a safe have, a safe home where suffering is not a part of their experience, where certainly prosperity is what is being taught. And so... I, I, it seems like that stems from your pastoral concerns yeah. and what you have seen. Uh, so talk about the importance of presenting a Christian gospel that is um, that is not safe, but that is good. Well, and of course, that's, you know, that C.S. Lewis Aslan influence, isn't it? He's right. He, he's not safe, but he's good. Yeah. So, so this this idea that Jesus was nice mm. uh, is very dangerous. Jesus was not, he was many things, but nice in the way to <laughs> use that term is really not appropriate. Kind, kind, compassionate, yes. But Jesus was very radical, far more so than we tend to allow him to be in our own thoughts or hearts when we read him and certain in the actions that follow with it. Um, and this includes a call to follow him. And it's something that our fathers, grandfathers, grandmothers, in the faith, I think knew more intimately, which was a call to follow him, even with suffering. Um, I was a pastor in charismatic churches. I've talked about this in several different places, uh, not in the book, but in other other situations for for twenty years. There's a lot of good in 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 many charismatic right. circles. So again, I want to be very very careful here. But but one of the problems that exists in some of them is this view that Jesus just came to make your life better. You can have a better car, a better house. Uh, if you don't like the spouse you have, you can probably get you a better one. Um, maybe even give you better right. kids. Um, 
But and you'll and if you have enough faith, you'll never be sick and you'll never have any problems and all that kind of stuff. Well, in point of fact, suffering is is a part of what it means to follow Christ. And that suffering takes many different forms. And suffering is something that comes to us from the enemy to make us deny God. It is something that comes to us from God to teach us to depend on him. And in doing so, we bear witness to who Christ is. The world needs to see Christ crucified. And many times they see that most especially in the life of a suffering believer who understands that they have to depend on God. That's what I've found in, in, and again, Yuri, and you know how this is. Our, our churches teach us more about Jesus than we ever right. teach them. Um, I, uh, I've watched people now for almost 40 years follow Jesus, and, and in their suffering, in their pain, in their grieving, um, they show me what it means to be a follower mm. of Jesus, to walk by faith and not by sight. So I, I want to emphasize, one of the emphases I want to bring in the book is that Jesus is radical. He calls us to following him completely, um, and that that will include seasons of, of suffering, which we can offer up to him in service. To serve God will mean that there are seasons where we are, are in pain and walking with people in pain, carrying them. So I don't think that that can be avoided. And I think it's essential to say it right yeah. at the outset. Yeah, and you, and you yeah. seem to have gone through some of that yourself with uh, with uh, your bride, yeah. correct? Yeah, Tony was very sick. Uh, she became very ill in 2010. Uh, we almost lost her. Uh, a very hard time even diagnosing what she was suffering from. Uh, the intervention of a friend, she ended up in um, going from Austin up to Dallas to Zale Lipsy Hospital there at the in, at the in, in a specialist. Uh, treated her there it was they were able to diagnose it very fairly quickly but uh, yeah we almost lost her um, and the condition that she suffered from could have left her paralyzed it certainly left her weakened and and changed her life was changed by that but I'm very grateful that she survived it it was a very very painful uh, year and a half journey and there have been many episodes since then where the uh, the symptoms of that uh, will rise up and we have to be very careful about that. But, but again, far more people have suffered far worse than we have. But um, with, our, with our, our work in the church, with God's people, I've, I've seen folks, one of them I mentioned right. in the book, um, the, the pain of forgiveness, of a woman forgiving and ministering to the man who was a drunk driver mm. who killed her daughter. Um, these kinds of things, these sorrows that occur, but also the hope. That happens in the middle of these. Uh, you know, when you and I as pastors, we get to stand in places that are deep, places of deep privilege. And one of those I've always found is at a funeral when people are going by their last respects and there's the family up there at the end. And one very poignant one I recall was a, a man that it, this was in Kentucky and he'd been married to this woman for 60 years. Wow. She had gone before him and he's the last one standing there by the coffin before they close it. And he, le- he leaned over Yuri, he kissed her very gently on the cheek and patted her hand. And he said, I'll see you. Oh, wow. He had been saying that, you and I both know, he'd been saying that for 60 wow. years. I'll see you. I'll see mm-hmm. you in the morning. That's Christian faith. That's Christian hope. And that is in the middle of pain. I'll see you in the morning. 
And, and that man preached the gospel to me that day. Mm. And he's been preaching that to me ever since. Uh, I'll never forget that. Uh, so I, I think when we need to know that God, the God who is with us is the God who is with us in the fire, the Son of Man who's standing in the midst of the flames, and the, the, the Lord who delivers us, and uh, the, the one who's with Paul when he says we despaired even of life. Uh, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, and, and uh, the God who says my grace is sufficient for you, I'm not taking that thorn away. These are, these are real ordeals. That God's people face. And look, when you hear people say, well, we don't really suffer, you know, when, even when I hear people say, well, the church in America may suffer persecution or something, well, that's a very white evangelical thing to say. Uh, our African American brothers and sisters have suffered a lot in this country. And our brothers and sisters around the world, of course, today are suffering immensely. There's immense persecution. So the idea that there's a kind of Christianity which has nothing to do with suffering and only to do with the, um, a kind of baptized version of the American dream is utterly antithetical to the gospel and something to be really vigorously repudiated. It's true. I mean, there are, as you know, there are, there are families who, who live through with great health for lengthy periods of time. Yeah. But, but the reality I think that's missing there is that the suffering church is a church that's in communion with one another so that uh, exactly. it's very hard to, for someone to talk about suffering if they haven't entered into the suffering of others. Um, I, I think that's, that's, that's right. very, a, a rich element of the gospel proclamation is that even though God may not have put us to tremendous trials and sufferings, it is, it is a fact that in a, any community of the Christian faith, you're going to be around people who suffer. And the question is then, what do you do with their suffering? Do you attempt to enter into it and bring find redemption right. and minister redemption, or do you isolate yourself from it? If you isolate yourself from it, you impoverish your own soul. Um, that's not only true, but it, but even worse, if you turn towards the suffering and say something like, well, if you just had a, if you just had more mm, faith, you wouldn't yeah. be suffering. Well, now, now you're in, in, uh, actually inflicting wounds on brothers and sisters. So Christ incarnation, the incarnation tells us that God enters into our pain. I've heard the cry of my people. I've seen their affliction. I've come down to deliver them. He does not stand afar from us and say, hey, come over here. He enters into our degradation. He enters into our poverty, he enters into our suffering. That's the God we serve who gets naked with but a towel and washes our feet. That's our God. So if that's the the God we serve is the God of the cross, and so there, that, that's what we're, we're and we're his we're the body of Christ. So we have to turn towards each other in our pain and suffering, and uh, and then out of that as well, turn to the world in its pain right. and suffering, and love our neighbors. Uh, that's vital for us as a t- living, breathing testimony to the kindness mm-hmm. of God. So, and I try to emphasize that in the chapter on the virtue of love. One of the elements that came out of your book was this distinct sense that you have experienced or seen personally religious leaders or people in the church in general misuse the Bible and yeah. turn it into a weapon against others, as you say in the book. And you, you're very cautious about that. You, um, I've been reading through Calvin's Institutes lately and found a little, a little section, mm. a little phrase where he talks about how there ought to be some caution in the minister in using the Bible flippantly. I don't remember the language, but it's something of that nature. Um, yeah. I think it goes along with what you're saying there. Can you give me some examples, David, in your pastoral ministry, how 
you have seen the Bible used poorly. Sometimes the intentions are not evil, but it, it has that kind of effect. Right. 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 Uh, well, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, there's a there's a there's a maybe a, a good starting point, which is that we is that people I think rightly believe the Bible should apply to all of life, right? So it doesn't really matter whether the realm is family or economics or 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 um, uh, the life of the church or business ethics or whatever, but the Bible applies to all of life. So the problem arises when people try to take the Bible and apply it incorrectly. Um, so at one end of the extreme, you would have the kind of prosperity approach, you know, where you pick and choose some verses and, and try to cram them into um, amening the American dream. That's one end of the spectrum. But the other end of the spectrum is equally sinister and that is where, again, there's some picking and choosing of Bible verses uh, to shame uh, people. And instead of inviting them to the beauty of the redemption that's available in Jesus. So, in, for instance, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. Um, when, we, when, we, when, we, when Christians use the Bible... Uh, to first of all, as a, a first reference, is pointing out the sinful failures of people. That's the very first thing we do. Um, then, and, and, and saying, we can't have fellowship with you because of X, whatever it is. Um, I think we're, we're in, in some dangerous ground. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that using the Bible for judgment purposes belongs in the house of God. His problem with the Corinthians is they weren't exercising proper judgment in the house. But he said, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? When I said, um, have nothing to do with unbelievers, I didn't mean go out of the world or, or the unbelievers. Then you'd have to leave right. the world. So there is this kind of um, approach to the culture, which is a very us versus them idea says, I have to um, point out to you where you don't come up to my standards to begin with and establish that as the basis of the relationship rather than starting off with something like the incarnation and moving towards people with kindness and building bridges for the truth of the gospel. So I think there's quite a bit of that goes on. Um, and people use it in political. This is going to be. You can't help but be controversial when you talk about politics. But I'll try. I'll try to. I've, I've seen over the years people try to use various models. Um, say, well, the, the the president or somebody is like the new Cyrus right. or new Nebuchadnezzar, whatever. I mean, all, always trying to use the Bible in that way. I think is extremely unhelpful. Very dangerous, in fact. Politicizing the, the faith is um, something that is unwise at best and dangerous as mm. well. David, you've been in the ministry for um, for almost four decades. It, it is an amazing thing, as I, as I read through the book, how saturated it is with the work of Jesus. Yeah. Can you if, if you, if at all possible, David, can you give me an example of how in, throughout your pastoral ministry, when you were just down and feeling defeated, yeah. where the gospel conquered that weakness and brought you to a new day with a new view of who Jesus truly is. Can you think of something? 
Well, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I think I could go right back to that illness that Tony was suffering from. The, the, the neurologist sat with us in her hospital room. This was in Austin. And uh, he, he said uh, they couldn't diagnose it. They weren't making progress. This was after almost a couple of weeks of hospitalization. And she was deteriorating rapidly. And, and he said, uh, we're going to dismiss you. We don't know what to do. Um, you just need to go home. Uh, go home and read the book. This is literally what the guy said. Go home and read the book of John. Wow. Bad things happen. Bad things happen to good people. And I, I turned to him and I said, can, can we go on the hall for just a second? <laughs> <laughs> I got out with him in the hall and I said, hey, I'll tell you what. Um, why, don't, why don't you leave the theology to me and, and, I'll leave, and I'll leave the neurology to somebody else. And I fired him on the spot. But I was very angry and I was very, very distressed. And I saw no hope for Tony's recovery. And, and I remember... And I'm, I'm, I think I mentioned this in the introduction. I was walking out of the hospital, and I, I saw an entrance into the chapel. It was a Catholic hospital. And there was a, a crucifix in there. Very not, that's not no shock, no surprise. Walked in, and there was the crucified in front of me. And uh, I saw images of that kind of pain and that kind of suffering in my wife's own suffering. She was in in some of her distress. Uh, of course, uh, it's 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 not at the level. None of our suffering is at the level of Jesus' own suffering. But she that reality of his suffering met me there in that point of depression, hopelessness, anger, despair. I thought I was losing everything. I did not want to go on. I didn't want to go on without her. I didn't want to go on with um, this pain. I didn't know how it would resolve. And I was, I was, but in that moment, I saw him and I went, you know what? There's a third day. This is not the end of the story. The third day will come. Um, he will rise. And so the God who suffers is the God who rises to conquer death. And, to, and, and he's going to, he, in, in that moment, that's that dimly burning wick of my own faith. And it was very, mm. it was burning yeah. very dim. He did not blow it out. He nourished and gently tended that remaining ember, that flame, and, and breathed some life onto it And with the third day reality. And that got us through, got me through. That's one instance. I could probably point to others, but that was a particularly personal one. And not that long ago. No, that's, that's very powerful. David Cassidy is the lead pastor of Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee, and the author of Indispensable, The Basics of Christian Belief. David, uh, thank you for this labor, which I hope pastors will um, take advantage of. It's a wonderful description of what the gospel is, of who Jesus is, and of the what it means to live the Christian life, and a very real one, too, uh, which I think would be very fruitful for new Christians and other Christians also. David, thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us at Kyperian Commentary. Yuri is a joy. God bless you, friend. It's great to talk to you.